Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good morning, everyone. We're very glad you're with us. It is Wednesday. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, April 12th. In Louisville, police have released just dramatic body camera video from Monday's mass shooting inside of a bank. The police chief says that his officers' actions saved lives. Also, Republican Senator Tim Scott is now taking a step toward running for president. We are told he is going to announce an exploratory committee later this morning. Also here in New York, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has now sued Congressman Jim Jordan. He's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. As Bragg is trying to challenge his investigation into the DA's prosecution of Trump. We have that and this that we're keeping a close eye on today. An Indiana town under evacuation orders after a giant fire broke out at a recycling plant. Officials say that the smoke is toxic and the fire could burn for days. And Michael Jordan setting a new record. At auction, listen to this. Do you guys remember this? It's a throwback. Right, that is a, uh, it's game-worn sign 13s from the 1998 NBA Finals going for $2.2 million. Tune in this morning. Starts right now. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Did you place your bid? No. You did, but right? Do you remember that great ad, the Spike Lee must be the shoes? Yeah. I'd yeah. be like Mike. That took me back to, I don't know if it was high school or college <laughs> or whatever. You didn't believe me when I told you I grew up with that Wings poster, or was that you? across In my room. You know the famous yeah. Michael Jordan Wings? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I look know. Look at us. We look like Easter eggs. <laughs> I brought it Monday, Caitlin brought it Tuesday, and you are... Caitlin's like popping off the screen now. <laughs> right, it's my favorite suit. All yeah, right, uh, like but egg, we, let's go to Indiana because these pictures yeah. are just stunning. That's where we begin this morning. A huge fire emitting toxic smoke at a recycling plant in the town of Richmond. Watch this. Can you imagine standing there filming this like this person did? The flames prompting officials to issue evacuation orders for about 2,000 people there. Unknown plastics are burning at the plant, sending a giant pillar of black smoke all over Richmond. Officials are now waiting on air monitoring test results to help decide how long people are going to have to stay evacuated. Firefighters say when they responded to the scene, they discovered a semi-trailer engulfed in flames. It was fully loaded with uh, unknown type of plastics. Uh, the fire spread from the semi-trailer to other uh, piles of plastics that were around the trailer. Um, we only had one access into the to the, where the fire was. All the other access roads were blocked by piles of plastic and other semi-trailers. 
So the obvious question this morning is how did this start? Officials say they don't know and they won't know until that fire is extinguished. They say it could burn for days. So we'll be live on the ground in Richmond with our colleague on the ground a little bit later on CNN this morning. Also, right now, we are tracking some body camera footage that has been released by police in Louisville after that mass shooting at a bank. This is footage that comes from the body cameras of the first two officers to arrive on the scene after those 911 calls were placed. As we know, a rookie cop who was only about 10 days out of the police academy was shot in the head. He's still in the hospital recovering right now, and his training officer ended up being the person who killed the gunman. I do want to warn you that what you're about to see is the moment that the gunman actually ambushed the officers as they approached the entrance. We're making entry from the uh, from the east side at Preston and Main. Police now say that gunman was waiting in the lobby to ambush the officers after he had shot his co-workers. An eyewitness cell phone video that was also released by police shows a different angle of the entire incident. After the gunman opened fires, the training officer rolls on the ground, runs down the stairs to take cover behind a planter. He's unable to see the shooter through the glass, but the rookie was lying outside the event entrance. Of course, as we know, severely wounded. You can hear them calling for help for him in this audio. CNN's Adrian Broadus is live in Louisville. Adrian, obviously, you know, they released this body cam footage very quickly, and it does show what happened here, how quickly they were able to go in and get the shooter, despite the fact and the number of people that he was still able to shoot and injure. Caitlin, not only does that video show, but we can also hear the stress level in the officer's voices. But despite the high stress officer Corey Galloway, the field training officer, remained calm as he gave instructions to the other officers responded. He's been uh, responding, excuse me. He has been a police officer since 2018, and he was outside just behind this bush behind me when he fired the shot that took out the shooter. And what you're about to see is graphic. Stop. Stop right here. Gunfire rings out almost immediately. As police pull up to the mass shooting at Old National Bank on Monday morning, Louisville PD releasing body camera footage worn by the two officers shot while responding to the attack. We're making entry from the uh, from the east side. Footage shows for rookie officer Nicholas Wilt, the encounter lasts seconds. He runs up the steps of the bank and is shot in the head. Wilt's field training officer, Corey Galloway, was also hit, and body camera footage shows that he falls, then moves down the steps, concealing himself behind a planter box. God damn it! The shooter has an angle on that officer. We need to get up there. I don't know where he's at. The glass is blocking him. Moments later, more gunfire. The gunman is dead, killed by police three minutes after they arrived. It feels like eternity to watch. You can only imagine how it felt for them, for people to react by staying there, staying in the fire and going back inside the scene, keeping themselves in danger. That's superhuman. Photos show the gunman, a 25-year-old bank employee, inside a hallway. 
Police say the images were snapped just moments after he finished shooting co-workers on the ground floor. He then went to the front lobby and set up an ambush and waited for officers to respond. At one point, a police dispatcher warns responding officers they were heading to the scene of a targeted attack. He's texted a friend, called a friend, left a voicemail, he's going to kill everyone at the bank, feeling suicidal. Louisville is the latest community coping with the horror of gun violence. That includes Dr. Jason Smith, who has cared for gunshot victims for 15 years. He's now treating Officer Wilt, who is still in critical condition. I'm weary. There's only so many times you can walk into a room and tell someone they're not coming home tomorrow. And it just breaks your heart. And he says it is hard that doctor has been treating physical injuries for 15 years, but he too, like so many others in this community, have emotional injuries. We are also hearing from the family of the 25-year-old shooter. They spoke out via a statement saying they knew their son struggled with depression and lived with mental illness, which they say they were actively trying to address. I also want to add, and I'm paraphrasing, they said here expressing their condolences for the lives that were lost, saying no word can express our sorrow, anguish, and horror at the unthinkable harm our son Connor inflicted on innocent people. So many families hurting this morning. Back to you. Absolutely. Adrian, thank you. And before he left for Ireland, the president spoke out on that, monitoring the situation where just moments from now, he will be holding a bilateral talk with UK's Prime Minister Richie Sunak in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He'll be addressing students at Ulster University later this morning. The president's visit, visit coincides with the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and we're told the president plans to discuss the economy and America's commitment to peace in the country. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan, live for us in Carlingford, Ireland, this morning. Doni, good morning to you. understand you spoke with some very special folks there. What do you know? Hey, Don, yes, a lot uh, of excitement building here in Carlingford, County Loud in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, this is where uh, just some of uh, President Biden's ancestors uh, hail from. He has visited this town before, uh, and we actually bumped into somebody uh, who told us a little bit about that earlier. Have a listen fantastic. I mean, we all remember when he was here in 2016 and um, we met him just over over, um, over at the green there. He actually came upon myself and my son. He was eating a crepe and my son's face was covered in chocolate and he wanted a bite of the crepe. So we've a great picture then <laughs> and we're all very excited to see him coming today. He's got ancestral roots here in, um, in the Cooley Peninsula and we're delighted to showcase Carlingford Wait, to I him. Don, I don't know if you're seeing a trend here, but, uh, you know, we told you about the chicken nuggets yesterday. Now he's trying to get a, a bite of a crepe. Uh, but we're actually joined live right now uh, by Joe Biden's, President Biden's fifth cousin. Have I got that right? You have indeed, Don. Barra yeah. Mulligan. Yes. A uh, lot of excitement here today, Barra. Great excitement around the village and around the peninsula as a whole. Like, um, it's been buzzing this past week, I'd say, just with people... People are so excited, his relations are so excited, it's great family bonding thing. Um, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, You're, uh, and you, you actually got to, to meet uh, Biden when he was vice president, Yeah, right? back in 2016. Right. And tell us a bit about that. Uh, out at Lily Finnegan's the pub, he arrived in a big cavalcade. There was a good few people outside the pub, over 100 to meet him. 
I shook his hand. He held my child, Jade, and um, that's yeah. So what What does it mean? Why Why are the Irish? Why Why are we so obsessed with American presidents? What is it about it? Well, I think it's the great connection between Ireland and America. Like you'll never, you'll never see anything like it. Um, Irish-American, like it's just something you've always grown up with, I'm sure you have as well. Like, and the immigration. The immigration, yeah, yeah. So let me just get this straight. So your great, great, great... Grandfather mm-hmm. was Joe Biden's great-grandfather's cousin. Very good. I think that's the best you like way that, you're so Oh, yes, yes. The yes. genealogists are working overtime uh, in Ireland. Bar, I hope you have a great day. I hope you get to see uh, the president. Much. By the way, guys, that we have even more cousins uh, are over here. Oh, my There's gosh. A crowd gathering already uh, <laughs> they're everywhere they're everywhere don uh, explain <laughs> this to us a biden cousin here. great great uh, great grandfather was joe biden's second cousin is that what you're is that what he said yeah yeah something like that yeah <laughs> something my, like that. my great grandmother bumped into his cousin in the street too, yeah so i think i'm family as well oh yeah, my gosh absolutely. Absolutely. did you go you're not really in ireland you're like on a hollywood lot in central casting <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm upstairs in a green room. That's yeah. And one more clear Wait, one thing for us here. They said crepe, Say as we would say it here in the United States, not, you know, crepe. It sounds different here to our ears, but we're saying we're, we're, crepe. We're, we're, we're sophisticated. Despite, despite uh, what you've heard, Don, we're, we're very sophisticated here. <laughs> Can we just talk about how epic it is that Doni is there right now interviewing <laughs> President Biden's Irish cousin as the president and his cousin. on his first trip? And Doni's cousin? Well, I have you guys. Uh, Biden, when he comes here later today, he is going to be dropping by this. This is Carlingford Castle. It is a 12th century castle. He's going to be getting a tour around there. He's going to be doing a walkabout around the town. As you can see, uh, all the American flags are up. Um, They're saying Secret Service are on the way. So uh, this place will be locked down pretty shortly. And more people showing up with more more American flags. Um, If you really want to feel popular as an American president, Come to, Ireland. come to Ireland. <laughs> oh my gosh, Look, folks are getting out there. Okay, Doni is uh, in Ireland interviewing the president's great, great, great grandfather's Just let it second. Go. <laughs> yeah, I, with crepes. Somebody. And Biden will see you next hour with crepes. What, or crepes. What I, what I think this What show, a way to start your day, huh? <laughs> Thanks, Doni. I Thanks, think this Doni. shows us there is actually nothing Doni cannot do. Right. Okay, from trick his parents with AI in his last piece on artificial intelligence to go to Ireland and cover the president's visit. My question is what Biden's approval rating is there versus the way he'll Probably very good. Is, that higher than, is there a higher than 100%? <laughs> 200. Uh, that made my morning. Okay, uh, also this news, significant. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is suing Republican Congressman Jim Jordan. The DA filed the lawsuit yesterday. He accuses Congressman Jordan of trying to interfere with his office's criminal probe against former President Donald Trump. Congressman Jordan serves as the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He has been investigating Bragg's handling of the case. Arcaris Canell is here with more. He wants to talk to uh, Mark Pomerantz, who uh, left Bragg's office and wrote this book, et cetera, in the middle of this investigation. This this is rare to see um, how Bragg is responding, no? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen the former president and some of his allies try to block congressional subpoenas, including Jim Jordan. He, he didn't comply with a subpoena during the House January 6th investigation. Kind of the tables have turned here. This back and forth between the House Republicans and Jim Jordan and Alvin Bragg, you know, coming to a head now with Bragg saying, OK, I'm suing to block this subpoena for testimony for Mark Pomerantz. He's saying it's unconstitutional. Congress is a federal body. This is a state local prosecution. And also they're looking for grand, <clears throat> excuse me, grand jury information that's covered by secrecy laws because that whole right. process is secret. So they're trying to block this subpoena as well as any potential future subpoena to Bragg or any other current or former prosecutors. So in their lawsuit, they write, in some, um, excuse me, um, Congress lacks any valid legislative purpose to engage in a free reign ranging campaign of harassment in retaliation for the district attorney's investigation and prosecution of Mr. Trump under the laws of New York. This court should enjoin the subpoena and put an end to this constitutionally destructive fishing expedition. Uh, you know, they also note in this, they're tying Jim Jordan to some of the verbal attacks that the former president has made against D.A. Bragg, you know, saying that they've received over 1,000 calls and emails that are either either racially charged or threatening to Bragg's office, including, you know, as we discussed, the um, envelope with the white yes. powder that turned out to be non-hazardous. Uh, you know, and Jim Jordan, though, was on Fox News last night. And let's take a listen to his response to this lawsuit. To understand what happened here, Alvin Bragg used federal funds to indict a former president for no crime. And then when we ask questions about it, when we want to investigate, he takes us to court. They're obstructing our constitutional duty to do oversight. Now, what he's talking about there in this forfeiture thing, Bragg's office um, is, you know, one of many of these state and local prosecutors that when they have these big settlements, they contribute money to a forfeiture fund. Bragg's right. office says they contributed over a billion dollars in the last 15 years. And they've used about $5,000 on this investigation as Trump. Most of that going to their fight to the Supreme Court to get Trump's taxes. Wow. All completely fascinating. And I have no idea where this is going to go. Kara, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Carol. Also, speaking of former President Trump, he may be getting another Republican challenger in the 2024 race. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is making moves for a possible presidential run ahead. How does he stack up against the other candidates? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We, we need uh, mature leadership. That's right. In a time of crisis. We need folks who are not focusing on each other, ourselves as leaders, but people who are focusing on the problem and who it affects the most. And that's never the leader. That's South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, Republican, who did that interview last week, but reposted the clip on Twitter just hours before he announced that he plans to launch an exploratory committee for president. In an email to supporters overnight, Scott wrote that in part, I've been doing a lot of thinking the last few months. I've been thinking about my faith. I've been thinking about the future of our country. And I've been thinking about the left's plan to ruin America. Joining us now is CNN senior political commentator and former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings. Scott, obviously this is not a huge surprise to people, but this would be the next formal step for Senator Scott to take. Is there room for him in this 2024 race? What, is, what does that look like for him, do you think? Well, I certainly think there's room for Tim Scott. He's one of the most uh, well-liked and beloved Republicans in the country. I mean, everywhere he speaks, everywhere he goes, uh, people love uh, what Tim Scott has to say and what he represents. He'll be probably 
the most optimistic person in the race. You know, he always presents the Republican Party, the GOP, as the grand opportunity party. He talks about America in optimistic terms, which, of course, as you know, uh, is a big departure from how Donald Trump uh, and others describe America. So he's a he's going to have a different kind of marketing style, which is relentlessly optimistic. Now, just to be uh, fair on the technical side, he starts very low, probably at one percent, just like a lot of the other people who are looking to challenge Donald Trump. So he's got a long way to go. But if you look at people who have just raw political and communication skills, mm-hmm. he's going to have uh, one of the, the highest and most developed skill sets in the race. So it does give him a chance to break out, you know, say in a state like Iowa or New Hampshire, where those kind of retail skills are going to be very uh, useful for him. One of the things I think is so striking, you just sort of mentioned it, is that you've called him relentlessly positive and optimistic, obviously a huge contrast to Trump, who he'll be running against in the primary. But his family story Um, the line he often repeats from cotton to Congress in one generation. Is positive and optimistic in a family story like that what you think Republican primary voters are looking for? I think they will really like the story. I think they have liked that story about Tim Scott, and I think he's he's gone a long way on it. I do think in the current uh, Republican Party uh, emotional frame, you also have to show a little bit of fighting spirit. And so he has to marry that optimism mm. with the ability to say, and I will fight to protect, you know, what I see is, uh, you know, a better future for America. I mean, Republicans are looking for fighters. They're looking for confrontation. Uh, they're looking for people who want to fight the left right now. I mean, that's why you see so many of the other campaigns really sort of on the same messages uh, almost every day. So I think as long as he can also show that, uh, this story is, is going to sell. Look, I think you put this guy in front of a crowd in Iowa or New Hampshire, or obviously in South Carolina, where he's been elected. He's going to be electric. I mean, he is a he is one of the best, if not the best communicator in the Republican Party mm. today. So uh, putting the optimism together with the fighting spirit um, could be a combination for him to uh, make some hay. You said that admittedly you think he starts off low. You said like one percent. Right. Is that so uh, can you handicap the field for us? Because if you look at it, you've got um, Donald Trump who appointed Nikki Haley. She's going to be running against him. Right. And you have Nikki Haley who uh, who appointed Tim Scott. Right. Um, So, you know, handicap this for us. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think it's pretty simple. You've got Trump who occupies a fairly large space and you have everyone else in the in the everyone else bucket. Ron DeSantis right now is by far and away. Uh, the most powerful candidate in that group. And so all that non-Trump group, the people who are looking to consolidate the I want someone else uh, crowd, they're going to be fighting each other over the next several months to see who can emerge. A prolonged fragmentation uh, uh, helps Trump. In fact, it would almost guarantee his nomination. If someone could break out of the non-Trump group, like DeSantis, like Tim Scott, whoever it happens to be, uh, what they want to try to do is get to a place where it's essentially a one-on-one contest. That gives them the best chance to, to take out Trump in a non-fragmented field. So uh, this is where Tim Scott is uh, uh, starts pretty low, uh, but with a lot of skills. And I think Republicans are going to love him out there. And I'm glad he's in the race because I think we need more optimists in politics. He is one of the most optimistic people. His life story is terrific. Uh, and I think it's inspiring to a lot of folks. Whether he wins or loses, he's an inspiring guy. We need people like Tim Scott Politics. And it's good that he's in there. Scott, we appreciate it. And time to get your kids on the school bus. We wish you were here, but, you know, get at it, Dad. You got it. You got it. I got to go wake him up right now. Oatmeal's on the stove. And, Scott, we're sorry. <laughs> also, uh, and not to end on a sad note, but we're sorry what happened in your state. We hope you guys are holding up. Yeah. Thinking Absolutely. about you. Thank you very much. Yeah, r- rough you. day for Kentucky.
Thanks, Scott. So this morning, defense officials say that they will, quote, turn over every rock until the source of the Pentagon document leak is found. We're going to speak with the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. That's next. Nothing will ever stop us from keeping America secure. We take this very seriously, and we will continue to investigate and, and turn over every rock until we find the source of this and the extent of it. This morning, the investigations into leaked Pentagon documents is taking shape. The documents, some of which U.S. officials say are authentic, expose the extent of the U.S.'s eavesdropping on key allies, including South Korea, Israel, and Ukraine. The documents also reveal the degree to which the U.S. has penetrated the Russian Ministry of Defense, and they appear to divulge key weaknesses in Ukraine's defense. Now, officials are saying that it could take months to complete to complete their investigations, but the intel community will do everything in its power to get to the bottom of what happened. So joining us now is the former House Intelligence Chairman, Mike Rogers. Good morning, Chairman. Thank you so much. Listen, there's so much, you know, to talk about here is how this happened, you know, is there too much access to um, classified documents? But your key concern here is a damage to our allies. Good morning, thank you for joining us, but that is your key concern. Yeah, good morning all and good morning Don. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that reason is because this is relatively recent information about an ongoing conflict. Uh, it wasn't older information that is embarrassing, but you can get over. This is in real time and is causing problems for our allies today. Uh, you know, there were some really sensitive leaks about, you know, different activities happening in and around Ukraine. That hurts our allies. And it, it does hurt our credibility a little bit. They, they're going to start asking about what they share and how they share it. And this happened after WikiLeaks, but this is going to happen again. And it's going to take a real effort by the administration to go and try to patch this thing up. You, you've made the point that the intel doesn't tell the whole story, which makes it, I would assume, even more problematic in terms of our relationship with allies because they're not seeing the full picture. Oh, and by the way, the White House says we don't even know if this thing is over. Yeah, it'd be my guess, uh, Poppy. Listen, th there's no way that the, this individual doesn't have more information tucked away somewhere. I will guarantee that's the case. And so they're always worried about this another another wave of leaks. And you know, the way it was it was leaked, we, we saw in years past uh, terrorist organizations use gaming chat rooms to communicate because they were, again, trying to get around U.S. intelligence and allied intelligence, trying to figure out what they were doing. And it was very clever. And so this is really in that same vein. So this is, some people would look at it and say, that wasn't very sophisticated. I would look at it and say, that's pretty sophisticated. They have, they're trying to move these documents in a way uh, that would uh, kind of get around uh, intelligence services collecting on them and seeing this information uh, to, to move it along. So more information is likely there. I know that's what they're worried about in the Pentagon today when they get up this morning. Uh, and trying to tighten this noose as fast as you can without stopping operations because you know they're they're in the middle of, of supporting a, a, a nation that's trying to defend itself against Russia that's a that's a lot of moving parts and so you got to keep those parts moving and you've got to try to find out who and I'm, I'm gonna guess they're compromised in some way I don't think this is ideological given the information that they leaked this is somebody that was probably compromised by an intelligence service and and or volunteered for an intelligence service uh, for an intelligence service to give this kind of information Wait, can you repeat that last part again? That's how you think this, that's your suspicion of how this, this leaked? 
Uh, you mean from the individual? Yeah. I, I'm going to get, this is again, my old FBI training background. Yeah. This is somebody who was probably compromised by a foreign intelligence service and or volunteered to a foreign intelligence service to release information. That would be my guess. And if I were running the investigation, you'd want to start there. And there are certain things that you could look for to see if uh, somebody would fit in this pattern. Uh, that would that would start to narrow down the pool of people because remember thousands of people have to see this to do the things they do yeah. uh, and so you've got to start narrowing it down as fast and quickly as you can and I know you said that's just a guess but you have better insight on this than most people and when it comes to as this investigation is ongoing how they they patch this up and they being the US with allies Biden is welcoming South Korea for a state dinner in just a matter of weeks. How does that work, given they are clearly the most outraged so far? You know, what does that look like behind the scenes right now, you think? Oh, there's a lot of patching up going on. Uh, I think they've assigned uh, somebody from the administration to kind of cover the, uh, the, you know, the, the apology tour, if you will. And if you remember, I was chairman during the Snowden leaks, mm -hmm. and I, I too went to <laughs> into the EU to have some hard conversations uh, about some things. But I will, uh, and so what happens is, first of all, you have to kind of walk through exactly what you're doing with our, with that foreign uh, ally, South Korea. Here's what we're doing to do it, uh, to, to catch this individual, to try to stop the leak. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, we'll help you in any way we can through the <coughs> aftermath, both politically and otherwise, in any way we can. You know, I hope those are the conversations that are happening. Uh, with South Korea, they, you know, we still have important business with them. Yeah. Uh, remember, China is rising up in the, in the mm -hmm. uh, in South China Sea. South Korea is going to be a part of that. So we really need to be lashed up as tight as we can with those allies. And we, uh, we just can't afford to have anything drifting apart. That's yeah. what was so damaging about these leaks. Chairman, I hate to uh, do this because we're up against the clock here, but I just want to go back to something. You said that this is probably someone who is compromised. That differs from what defense officials, senior defense officials are saying that they believe behind the leak was, they're speculating that it was a Pentagon official's child wanting to show off to his friends since it first showed up on social media and gaming on the gaming platform Discord. Do you disagree with that theory wholeheartedly or do you think that's possible? Well, listen, the, the hardest part, Don, is all of that could be possible. The problem is the way, and I just, if you're going to do the investigation, you have to look at it as somebody's compromised and you take it from there. Uh, saying that it was a child that, that had access to classified information would scare me even more about how, how somebody's having access to classified information around their household. Uh, that would worry me. This is, uh, I, I believe, that they're going to find that somebody was moving this. We have seen this tactic used before, and that's what they should keep in mind when they start this investigation. Right. Chairman Mike Rogers, thank you very, very much. You mm -hmm. certainly know a lot about how things like this happen and the fallout. A lot of patching up to do, as you said. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, I had the latest legal developments in the medication abortion fight and what this all means for people who need that care now. We will explain next. One ideological federal court judge should not be able to dictate to the entire country and particularly to women across the United States whether they can use uh, abortion medication. Women across America understand that their rights are being infringed upon, uh, that they're under attack. 
That was Democratic Governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, last night when I was asking him about that judge, that judge's decision in Texas. It's the decision, of course, that would invalidate a judgment from the FDA and limit access to a widely used abortion uh, pill. An appeals court is giving the Justice Department and the manufacturer of that abor abortion medication until noon to respond to a filing from anti-abortion doctors who want to leave the ruling in place. The court could rule as soon as today on whether or not to freeze the order. Obviously, right, we are watching all of this closely. Sinan's Joan Biskupic joins us now. Joan, obviously the big question is how this is going to play out in a few hours, because even lawmakers and governors have said, let's wait to see what the courts decide in this situation before we weigh in or and say, you know, whether or not the FDA should ignore this ruling. That's absolutely right, Caitlin. Good morning. We are one step closer to a decision by a regional appellate court, the Fifth Circuit, who's looking at the federal district judge's uh, invalidation of the FDA approval of the first pill in the two-drug medication abortion. Uh, the Fifth Circuit has just received the filing from the original challengers who want that uh, order to go into effect this Friday, which could affect abortion access nationwide. Uh, as you said, the other side has, has until noon. The Department of Justice has asked that the Fifth Circuit actually decide this by Thursday so that if it denies a temporary stay on this, it can go to the Supreme Court and get the Supreme Court to intervene so that women have access to the drug at this point. One way or another, Caitlin, this case will eventually be before the Supreme Court and it will be a test of just how far they will go to lift uh, the ability of women to get abortion medication nationwide after their original decision, rolling back the constitutional right to abortion last summer, Caitlin. Yeah, seeing the ramifications of that decision. Joan, I know you'll be watching it. Thank you. Thanks. Thank so you. So wh while this court battle continues over access to Mifepristone, doctors are still prescribing alternatives, right, in case this drug is banned. Doctors are now saying another pill used in that two-pill abortion procedure is safe and effective when used alone. Let's talk about this with CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Mifepristol is the other one, and you're supposed to use them both together, right? But can you explain if Mifepristol works on its own and what that means for women? Right, Poppy. So let's talk a little bit about how this all works. So first, let's start with this, because I think a lot of people don't realize this. About 53% of abortions in the United States are done with pills. So not with surgery, but are done with pills. And it's two pills, as you mentioned. The first one is mifepristone, and then the second one is a pill called misoprostol. The Texas judge's ruling, if it, if it doesn't get blocked or changed in any way, it would get rid of mifepristone for women all over the country, no matter what state you live in, that would leave doctors only with misoprostol to use in miscarriages and abortions. That's another important point, which is that these drugs are used not just for abortions, but also in miscarriage care. And so what would end up happening is a woman would just get misoprostol, and that's a little problematic. It's not as effective, and it does have more side effects. So I was speaking to doctors who said, look, we'll use it and we'll do it if we have to, but it's not the best care for our patients. Let's take a listen to Dr. Erica Warner. She is head of obstetrics and gynecology at Tufts Medical Center. We train to try to keep people healthy, give them the most evidence-based care. And this ruling really jeopardizes that. We're feeling demoralized. We're feeling scared for our patients. Um, it's just really hard when you know you can't do the thing that is the safest for your patients. 
Dr. Werner told me that she is heartbroken that because of a single judge's ruling, she can't give her patients the best care. Elizabeth, thank you for explaining that. I think our viewers obviously have a lot of questions as this proceeds. Thanks. Certainly do. Low-wage workers are making more money than ever, but inflation is eating that extra cash up. Some waiters and cooks can't even afford the food and drinks they serve. So what is the solution? Do you think that some of your employees should be paid more? Should is a very difficult way to... Should if you could. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning, everyone. In a little less than two hours, the government will release new inflation data. We're going to bring you those numbers once we get them. But economists expect the numbers to show that price increases continued to cool last month. But we don't need to tell you this. Inflation is still stubbornly high. And even though some workers have gotten a bump in their wages, data shows it's just not enough. Our Vanessa Kavich spoke to some of the workers. Take a look. Valvin Nicholson works as a cook in a Manhattan skyscraper, but he lives here in Brooklyn in his mom's third floor apartment because he says his wages aren't keeping up with rising costs. What are we making? I'm going to make um, sweet chili salmon. How old were you when you had your first job in the kitchen? 1920. Do you remember your first job, how much you made? Eight something. How much uh, do you make now per hour? 23 and change. So the $23 that you make an hour now. It's not enough. It's not enough. You got to pay, you know, car notes and insurance is very expensive. Food and everything. Nicholson, originally from Jamaica, says his co-workers, many who are immigrants too, feel the same way, especially as inflation sits at 6%. In their new contract with their employer, Sodexo, a food service company, union workers are asking for a minimum of $20 an hour for everyone. Food service workers make about $14 an hour on average, and low-wage workers in other industries aren't far behind. Women, black, and Hispanic workers are disproportionately low-income earners. Before the pandemic, it was high-income earners who typically saw the greatest wage gains compared to low-income earners. But during the pandemic, it was low-wage workers who saw the greatest gains, up 9% compared to 4.9% for the highest earners and just 2.4% for those in the middle. There are two factors driving increases in wages among low-wage workers. The first is minimum wage increases amongst a number of states and also labor shortages. Does that mean their wages are rising right along with inflation? Well, no, wages haven't actually been catching up with inflation. This is the industry table, one table held each night at four of Michelin star chef John Frazier's restaurants exclusively for restaurant workers. They get 70% off the bill. So if I could put myself in the position of dishwasher, because I was one, I was one. there's no way that I could have afforded this restaurant on that salary. Do you think that some of your employees should be paid more? Should is a very difficult way to... Should if you could. Should if we could, of course, yeah. right. Said everyone everywhere all the time. But in order to make that happen, the consumer would have to pay more. Are you ready to pay 55 bucks when you go out for a chicken? Probably not. 
Hopefully by then, when we meet again, we're able to come to agreement. Valvin hopes that comes with a raise. Sodexo posted about $750 million in net profits last fiscal year. I came to the U.S. for American dreams. Do yes. you feel like you are living the American dream? No, I mean, not really. Right now, it's like you're living from paycheck to paycheck. And Sodexo, for their part, says that they feel like they have made some progress with these workers meeting their demands. They believe they can come up with a fair contract. But back to the industry table, this is a chef who wants to have restaurant workers from across the country, from dishwasher all the way up to other chefs, come in, eat at his restaurant. He feels like it's a way to say thank you for what these restaurants did during the pandemic, but also a way to say hey, we know you can't afford to eat here at these prices. Let's do something to be able to say, hey, we want to support you in the end. It's a really interesting experience. He wants this to go national. He wants other restaurants to get involved. I it's an interesting that. way to yeah. talk about wages in a climate where it's everything right now. That yeah. would be great if it did go national. Yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank Vanessa. you. Uh, also, right now, we are following this. You see these images. That is toxic smoke that is spewing into the air in Richmond, Indiana. It's been happening for several hours. Officials now say the burning of the plastic could last for days. We have crews headed to the scene right now at this moment. We'll bring you the latest on the ground ahead. LeBron James and the Lakers rallied in dramatic fashion to win in overtime against the Timberwolves and locked up a spot in the postseason. The Lakers were actually down by 10 points in the fourth quarter. And when the game tied and the time clock winding down, LeBron drove it and found Dennis Schroeder, who knocked down the three. The Lakers celebrate like they won, but there was still one second actually left on the clock. It went to overtime. Lakers won 108 to 102 to claim the seventh seed in the West and a date with the Grizzlies. The Hawks, meanwhile, putting a beat down on the Heat last night. The Hawks would prevail, winning 116 to 105. They now move on to face the Celtics. Mm. Can't wait for that and for our next hour. Scene in this morning continues right now. <laughs> Probably the largest fire I've seen in my career. An Indiana town under evacuation orders after a giant fire broke out at a recycling plant. There's a host of different chemicals plastics give off when they're on fire. And so it, it's concerning. And honestly, this fire is going to burn for a few days. What you're about to see is body camera footage from Louisville Metro Police Officer Corey Galloway's camera. God damn it! The shooter has an angle on that officer. We need to get up there. I don't know where he's at, the glass is blocking him. For people to react by staying there, staying in the fire, keeping themselves in danger, that's superhuman. The district attorney who indicted Donald Trump now filing a lawsuit against the top Republican. Alvin Bragg used federal funds to indict a former president for no crime. And then when we want to investigate, he takes us to court. Bragg accuses Jordan of what he calls, quote, a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack. He's striking back here and he's saying, essentially, you in the United States Congress have no jurisdiction here. Senator Scott is going to announce that he's launching an exploratory committee. He's been teasing a White House bid for months and is expected to make that announcement today in Iowa. He's one of the most uh, well-liked and beloved Republicans in the country. He'll be probably the most optimistic person in the race. 
The Biden administration for the first time proposing water cuts to save the Colorado River. That could devastate major western cities like Las Vegas, as well as Los Angeles and Phoenix. They need to wake up and people need to start conserving water now before it's too late. <laughs> You know, it is a Wednesday, but my gosh, what a busy news day today is. There's a lot going on. Good morning, so everyone. Ones. So glad that you could join us this morning. So we're going to begin with this. We're paying close attention to this story. It's out of Indiana. It's where about 2,000 people are being forced from their homes. Take a look at this. These are the flames that are and the smoke prompting officials to issue evacuation orders for about 2,000 people. Unknown plastics burning at that plant, sending a giant pillar of black smoke over Richmond. Officials are now waiting uh, on air. They're waiting on air monitoring test results to help decide the duration of the evacuation orders. And firefighters say when they responded to the scene, they discovered a semi-trailer engulfed in flames. It was fully loaded with uh, unknown type of plastics. Uh, the fire spread from the semi-trailer to other uh, piles of plastics that were around the trailer. Um, we only had one access into the, to the, where the fire was. All the other access roads were blocked by piles of plastic and other semi-trailers. So we do have a crew on the way to that scene, and we're gonna, they're going to bring you live uh, a report from there soon. But officials say that the cause of the fire likely won't be known until it is extinguished. But they say the fire could burn for days. And we're going to be live on the ground in Richmond just a little bit later on on CNN this morning. And while we wait for new developments in that, we're also tracking new body cam video that came out of Louisville overnight. Louisville police officers, as they rushed in to stop the mass shooter at the bank, this video comes from the body cameras of the first two officers to arrive on the scene. The rookie cop who was shot in the head, Officer Nicholas Wilt, he's still in the hospital actually recovering, and his training officer, who was the one who ultimately killed the gunman. I do want to warn you that what you're about to see is the moment that the shooter opened fire as the officers were approaching the entrance of this bank. We're making entry from the, uh, from the east side at Preston and Main. Police say the gunman was waiting in the lobby to ambush police after killing five of his co-workers. An eyewitness cell phone video shows a different angle. You can see the training officer run and take cover as bullets fly. He struggles to see the gunman through the glass as the rookie officer lays outside the entrance, severely wounded. He finally gets a clear shot about three minutes later. We're about to play the body camera video again. The wounded officer is blurred and you'll see the gunman's body on the floor. It is very disturbing to watch that. The gunman is there on the ground. He's surrounded by shattered glass. We're going to talk more about this 
newly released body cam video and the police response to it. I'm bringing in CNN senior, excuse me, chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, Mr. John Miller. John, uh, good morning to you. It's, you know, we have to remember that someone was shot there, uh, still recovering the police officer. Just your overall response to that video and the police response. Well, this is something police are practicing all the time. You know, it's no secret to the law enforcement community, as it isn't to us. We live in the active shooter world now. Mm -hmm. That's a reality we've discussed on this show. More active shooters than there have been days of the year. So this has been a developing focus in training. It was a year ago today that I was standing in front of those microphones in Brooklyn for the active shooter on the subway who shot 10 people in New York City. Right. Um, and, you know, we worked on this to make sure that every, every one of 36,000 police officers in New York was trained in these tactics. And what you see here, you know, C.J. Galloway, the police officer who fires that shot that takes the gunman down, and his partner... You know, they're approaching with these tactics in mind. They go to the far left. They're hugging that wall, and they find out the hard way. The wall they're using for cover is the wrong angle. Um, You know, Nick goes down. CJ cuts to the left and finds, you know, different cover. You just saw him on that video switching sides, trying to get that bead on the gunman. Deputy Chief Humphrey said yesterday, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good, you know, in the circumstances. And I would go through a door with either one of these officers, and... What does not perfect mean when you're under fire? It means in a perfect world, you would have waited for two more units, formed a four-person contact team, split two directions so that the subject's field of fire would, would be split in two and so on. But perfect doesn't exist in these situations. You go with the cards you're dealt, and they did, and they both acted very heroically and, aside from the courage, very tactically proficient. Yeah, and you can hear their concern on the audio for the other officer, the officer Nicholas yeah. Willard, who's still recovering and has been shot. Can we talk about what we're hearing from the mayor, though? And one thing that I was so struck by that he said yesterday is he was talking about what the rules are in Louisville and the laws and essentially saying that the gun that that shooter used, because of the law that they have there, will eventually one day, unless something changes, be auctioned off. So they are not the only place that does that. Um, <laughs> A sensible law is that you don't confiscate guns from criminals and then put them back out into a marketplace where they're going to return to the street, possibly to other criminals. Um, But that is one of those states uh, where the gun laws are minimalist to the point of being non-existent, meaning if you pass the federal background check that shows in their records, the NICS check, they call it, you're not a convicted felon Mm -hmm. um, or wanted, currently wanted criminal uh, you're able to buy that weapon. You also, to Caitlin's point, in in Kentucky, you do not need a permit to carry a concealed weapon, including a leak. This is a legally purchased mm-hmm. AR-15 style rifle. That's right. And I mean, Poppy, just to extend the the bizarre situation there, you have to be a resident of most states to buy a gun in that state. Um, in, in Kentucky, you can be a resident of any Anywhere. state as long as you, you know, are entitled to have a weapon in the state you're from, which so means I say, you can, can we put go the rules carry up? a concealed weapon no matter where you're from. As you're read, as you, I want you to continue on, but just, just so people can see, just to bring home what you're saying, a person over 21 who can legally purchase a firearm can carry it concealed uh, in public. No universal background checks, no red flag laws, no waiting period between the purchase of a firearm to physical transfer 
uh, to a buyer, enacted a Second Amendment sanctuary bill prohibiting local authorities from enacting federal gun regulations. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to... As, but to but I, that's, you're saying. that's what we're talking about, Don. And I mean, that there are other states like that. In the NRA databases and all that, when you look it up state by state, what are the rules here? They call that a free state. Brilliant. So many questions for it, and you're hearing it from city officials themselves. John Miller, thanks for, for breaking down that, and also the body cam footage with us. Yeah. Thank you, John. Coming at 9 p.m. on CNN tonight, um, John is going to travel, Caitlin's going to be traveling to Kentucky to speak with Governor Andy Bashir uh, about this. Just one week after former President Trump was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to 34 felony criminal charges in the hush money probe, the Manhattan District Attorney who brought those charges is now suing the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan. He's accusing the Trump ally of trying to interfere with his office's criminal case. The committee is investigating Bragg's handling of the case, demanding more documents and testimony. So let's bring in senior legal analyst and assistant, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District, Ellie Honig. Ellie, obviously we should know, we've noted before that you were a former colleague of D.A. Bragg, uh, that team prosecuting Trump. It's rare, right, to see this sort of back and forth in this way um, between, a, you know, a leading member of Congress, head of the Judiciary Committee, and the DA prosecuting the former president. It's very rare, Poppy. This is what happens when the law meets politics. And now we are in this really unique scenario that we've not seen anything quite like before. Now, all of this swirls around last week's indictment by the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, of Donald Trump, over the documentation around hush money payments made by Donald Trump before the 2016 election to Stormy Daniels. Of course, this was the first ever indictment of a president or a former president. Now, people started to take sides pretty early here. For example, Representative Jim Jordan, the new House Judiciary Chairman, wrote a letter to Alvin Bragg in which he said, quote, this is an unprecedented abuse of prosecutorial authority, and he demanded information from Bragg around the case. I want you to pay attention to the date of that letter from Jim Jordan, March 20th. <clears throat> that is before the indictment was unsealed. Yeah. That is before the indictment was even voted we knew on. What, before we knew what the charges were, before the grand jury had There was decided. no indictment. Yeah. The indictment, <clears throat> excuse me, did not exist. Now, Alvin Bragg responded to Jim Jordan and said, no thanks, Congress, this is not for you. Jim Jordan did not take well to that response. And so what Jim Jordan has now done is request information and testimony from Alvin Bragg, the DA, from Matthew Colangelo, one of the ADAs who's on the team prosecuting Trump. And then Jim Jordan served a subpoena from the House Judiciary Committee on Mark Pomerantz, a former ADA who was working on this case but resigned about a year ago. And now what Alvin Bragg has done with this lawsuit is he's gone into federal court and he's asked a judge to do two things. One, quash, as we say, meaning block the subpoena to Mark Pomerantz. And two, if they should subpoena Alvin Bragg or anyone else, Bragg says, I want a ruling right now that that kind of subpoena is invalid and will not be enforced. Well, what uh, kind of judge is going to make this decision? Yep. And on what legal grounds do they make the decision on? So this is this is the judge. She is a federal judge. Her name is Mary Kay Viscosal. Okay. She was appointed to the bench by Donald Trump in 2019. I never appeared in front of her. She came onto the bench after I left that district. But I asked around. She is not known as a partisan or an ideologue. She was basically a corporate big firm lawyer for about 30 years. Now, Alvin Bragg has taken this case to federal court. He's a state prosecutor, but he's essentially walked this case across the street because it deals with Congress, yeah. which has federal jurisdiction. So we are in the district court, which is the trial level court. There will be a hearing next week. The loser of that hearing can appeal to the Second Circuit and then perhaps 
up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So this Court. could also go <laughs> up to the Potentially, potentially up to the, Supreme the Supreme Court. Court decides what it wants to hear. How fast does this move? Well, uh, the hearing is set for next week. That's on yeah. a pretty quick time frame. So I expect this to move within weeks. I don't think we're going to have this dragged out. Do you, what do you think? Do you think Jim Jordan's going to get what he wants? Well, I mean, asking for grand jury information is exactly. not highly unusual. So you've hit on Alvin Bragg's first argument that he makes in his brief. He says, this is grand jury information. Yeah. It is secret. It is not to be out there in the public realm. Alvin Bragg also argues in his brief, he says, you're Congress. You have no jurisdiction over me as a local county DA prosecutor. And he makes a constitutional argument. He says the 10th Amendment says that what we call the plenary police power, meaning the power to regulate local safety, that is not for you, the federal Congress. That is for me as a local official. Alvin Bragg also writes in his brief, quote, this is a campaign of intimidation, retaliation, mm-hmm. And obstruction. Now, Jim Jordan is not going to go without a fight. He has not yet filed his legal brief, but he's arguing this is an attempt to interfere in the 2024 election. He argues Bragg has received his office, has received some federal funding. And he's argued what we're really doing here is looking at potential legislation. Yeah. Of which I think Kara said they used $5,000. $5,000 on this case. And by the way, the fact that some federal funds were used here doesn't mean Congress gets to ask whatever they want with no limitations. Okay, Ellie, thank you. That helps so much. Appreciate it. Uh, This morning, Donald Trump could get another Republican challenger in the presidential primary race. Senator Tim Scott formally announcing he is launching an exploratory committee. And guess where we're going? We're going back to Ireland for President Biden's historic visit. Donny O'Sullivan is standing by and speaking to fans and relatives, too, of (laughs) President Trump. Fans and family. (laughs) President Biden, sorry. More CNN this morning to come after the break. The trip is part diplomacy and part homecoming because Biden's ancestors came to the U.S. from Ireland in the mid-1800s when Biden was just a teen. (laughs) (laughs) President Biden making a historic visit today to Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Peace Accords. He started the day by sitting down with the new British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and next hour he is set to speak at a university there. You can see him here during his arrival in Belfast. The president's goal is to ensure that the peace plan that was brokered by the United States in 1998 remains in place. It is something he has talked about often since taking office. You can see his special envoy, uh, former Congressman Joe Kennedy there. Later this morning, the president is going to head south, though, to Dublin. And on the way, the place where his great, great, great grandfather grew up. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan is live in Carlingford, Ireland for us. Donny, I mean, we can get a sense of just how excited people are. I saw in your tease there was a cake with an American flag on it behind you. And, you know, he's known Mm -hmm. as the most Irish president since JFK. Absolutely. JFK started this tradition uh, 60 years ago this year of of U.S. presidents coming to Ireland uh, to find uh, their Irish roots. And a lot of people are already showing up here. Uh, in Carlingford, the president is not expected here uh, for hours, but they've already closed down the streets. And I want to introduce you to a, a very popular man in the town. Uh, his name is uh, Peter McGuigan. Peter. You're very welcome, Donny. Very welcome. Peter, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, why, what does this mean to the community? Well, what does it matter? Donny, it means everything. It means everything not only to Carlingford here, but to the whole peninsula. 
You know, we are competing here in this peninsula with the likes of Killarney and with Galway. Yes. But today, Joe Biden will change that for us. And we will be the tops. And you were telling yeah. me earlier, similarly to, to Biden's uh, ancestors left here around the time of the famine, you also have a lot of family that immigrated yes. to America. That's right. All the, all the, uh, there's nobody in the this peninsula they can't go back to their origin and say somebody belonged to them didn't emigrate to the USA everybody did and we were grateful for the attention and the, grateful for the, what we received and the welcome we received when we went to America as emigrants and we're extending that welcome today to President Biden to come here and join us. And that special relationship between, between Ireland and the United States, I mean it even goes up to this present day, the role uh, that, that Bill Clinton had in the Good Friday Agreement and Senator George Mitchell and now of course um, Biden is in Belfast today trying to encourage leaders in Northern Ireland Ireland. to get the government back well, together. There. He's trying to put a leg onto the table that fell down. But without, without uh, President Clinton, the Good Friday Agreement would never have happened. He was, it was exclusively down to him and Hillary Clinton for to get that up and rolling. And hopefully it will be back up again and the unions will come back in and sit at the table and we'll enjoy an, an, a great Ireland. And we'll have a party, a big party. Um, I, so That's right. Biden's going to be probably walking along the street later, at least you hope. Well, we hope he walks down yeah. here. It's obviously security people. Uh, uh, tell, right. me, tell me about this flag. What's yeah. going on well, with this? That is called the Irish-American historical flag. Okay. It was originally belonged to an American Marine. Right. But it found its way by auction into uh, Ireland uh, many years ago, and it's here 25 years. It belongs to a friend of mine in Wern Point. And it's signed by the last it's 14 presidents? It's signed by the presidents? last 14 presidents. And you're hoping that... And we're hoping we've left a little V there. You see that little cutout for President Biden to sign that today. Um, I quickly want to bring in Donna, who's Hi, Peter's Hello. daughter. Uh, Hi, Donna, Caitlin, you Hi. mentioned the cakes. Uh, Donna baked <laughs> yes. these cakes. She, you're all on this fantastic long. tea all room here. We've been baking all night long. We've had our cakes, we've our cupcakes, apple tarts made, homemade brown bread. We're waiting on Joe. You're hoping he takes We're away. We're waiting on Joe. If he doesn't come, we can come to him. Okay? <laughs> Guys, back to you in New York. It's a fun time here. We got the whole. We've... <laughs> It's Why back to us? I mean, this is so much fun. We can just hang out with you guys all day. We'd need a couple of pints here. <laughs> yeah, come on over. Come on over. My they're question, admiring the cakes. Dodie, are we sure they're not there for you? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're getting just as big of a reception. No, I don't think so. No, I'm not too popular in these parts. We're, we're, we're footballing rivals. We're sports rivals. So where, where I'm from, where Peter's from. Epic. We won in Ireland in 1957. Yeah. Never at the you haven't won one since. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one in a row, Pat Phelan calls it. Um, uh, Alabama football, I'm sure you're a big fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell him I said. Tell him I said. Yeah, yeah. Show him Nick Saban's picture. Tell him I said roll time. Tell him I said craziness now, Peter. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank but, you, Donnie. Uh, you're very right. welcome, Donnie, here to Calumet, and you're welcome to come back so anytime. Anytime. All right. All right. We'll let Donnie continue his conversation, having a good time from Ireland. Now we're going to go to South Carolina. This is where Republican Senator Tim Scott is launching a presidential exploratory committee. Watch. I will never back down in defense of the conservative values that make America exceptional. And that's why I'm announcing my exploratory committee for president of the United States. I will defend the Judeo-Christian foundation our nation is built on and protect our religious liberty. I will stand up to communist China and restore opportunities for hardworking Americans to thrive and prosper. 
I will fight to give every parent a choice in education so their children have a better chance in life. So that is a new video there. Senator Scott has been testing the waters for months and is scheduled to hold events today in New Hampshire. If Scott officially throws his hat in the ring for the GOP nomination, he would, of course, be challenging former President Trump, his fellow South Carolinian, former Governor Nikki Haley, former Governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, Ramaswamy uh, the former Vice President Mike Pence, the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, other potential candidates who could join the race. It's going to be a crowded field. There is for sure. Live pictures now out of New Jersey where a 2,500-acre forest fire is burning right now. This is happening in Manchester Township. It's about 50 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Officials say the fire is just 10% contained and residents there have been evacuated. Roads around the fire have been closed. No injuries have been reported. It's not clear what started the fire, but that is rare to see in this part of the area. Meantime, President Joe Biden speaks to the family of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter being wrongfully detained in Russia, will be joined next by the man at the State Department tasked with securing his release. Beautiful shot of Manhattan there. Welcome back to CNN This Morning, everyone. And new this morning, a senior Kremlin official says that Russia will not tolerate pressure by the U.S. over its detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. Now, Gershkovich is facing up to 20 years in prison on espionage charges, accusations the U.S. government and the Wall Street Journal both adamantly deny. He is still being detained, or denied, I should say, consular access while he awaits his next court date Tuesday in a Russian prison. President Joe Biden spoke with his family aboard Air Force One. That was yesterday. So joining us now, the U.S. Special Envoy for Hostage Affairs, Roger Carstens. He is working to secure the release of Gershkovich, as well as other U.S. citizens deemed by the State Department to be wrongfully detained around the world. He was on the plane with Brittany Griner to escort her back here to the United States after she landed in the uh, UAE. We're so grateful to have you on this morning. Thank you so much, sir, for appearing. Don, thanks for having me. Let me add, this is the newest information that we have. Just this morning, Russia's uh, deputy foreign minister said, quote, on this issue, we are acting in full compliance with our laws, naturally taking into account the provisions of the consular convention and are guided by available precedent in this area. Therefore, we reject any attempts to pressure us. What is your response to that? I would just say that the, that's perhaps not exactly true. The Russians owe us a consular visit. We have yet to have consular access. Uh, to Mr. Gershkovich, and the Russians owe that by international law and by the consular convention. What can you say, if anything, about the conversations that you have had with Russia about Evan Gershkovich's detention? Well, you know, the Secretary of State has had a chance to talk to Foreign Minister Lavrov. Uh, Ambassador Tracy uh, in Moscow has had a chance to talk to her counterparts. And we've had a chance for senior officials to talk to the Russian counterparts. And you can imagine we've been pressing them for uh, Evan's release. We've been pressing them for consular access. And anything beyond that, I'd rather not talk about. Want to maintain, uh, I guess, some of our negotiation space, as we might call it. But what I can tell you is this. In 26 months, this administration has brought back 26 Americans. So working closely with the National Security Council and the White House, we're going to find a way to bring Evan and Paul Whelan home. 
Yeah, I want to talk to you about Paul Whelan um, a little bit later on, but let's let's stick now to what's happening with Gershkovich. This week, the State Department officially said that he is being wrongfully detained. How is that designation made and what difference does it make in terms of working to secure his release? Well, how it's made, it's a deliberate process, so we don't really discuss it in public. Uh, I can't say that we take the facts of the case and apply them to a certain set of criteria that was generated by the Levinson Act, which was passed into public law uh, not too long ago. And eventually, if if the factors of the case meet with the criteria and it seems to be wrongful, the secretary makes that designation. What that does is that now, by force of law, obligates the United States of America to to seek a wrongfully detained American's release. And that's what we're doing right now. My office is working closely with the National Security Council at the White House to find those paths that will bring Evan home. You, in your first answer, um, you said that you were you were being denied the consular access. The Secretary uh, of State Anthony Blinken says that the U.S. is not being granted consular access as well to Gershkovich. Is there any progress being made on that front? I know that you said you didn't want to say too much, but is there any progress being made on that front? I mean, the simple answer is that we're continuing to press. Uh, we haven't received it, and this is like ones and zeros in computer language. You either get consular access or you don't. Let's talk about Brittany Griner, and then we'll talk about Paul Whelan. Brittany Griner's release involved a prisoner swap. Is this a, a prisoner swap? Is that on the table at this point? What I can tell you is that the President of the United States and the Secretary are committed to bringing Evan home, and Paul Whelan as well, and we're going to find whatever it takes to get that job done. Uh, wouldn't want to get into the specifics and the pathways of negotiation. To my mind, that might decrease our uh, chances to garner that release. But I can tell you that the president's shown time and time again that he's committed and he's willing to make the hard decisions to find ways to bring Americans home. Okay, so you mentioned Paul Whelan. Let's talk about that because he is a former Marine who the U.S. also says is being wrongfully detained in Russia. This is what his brother had to say just yesterday. Watch this. American citizens, and they both deserve the, the full weight of the U.S. government behind them, regardless of what their profession is, uh, regardless of how they ended up in this situation. They've been labeled wrongfully detained, they've been charged with the same crimes, and I think they deserve the same treatment. I'm going to ask you, are these two cases being negotiated together, or are the conversations about these two Americans being held separately? You know, I can't get into the uh, specifics of the negotiation, Don. I'm sorry about that. What I can tell you is that I talked to Paul uh, just this last Monday on the 10th of April. We talked for about 15 minutes. We actually talked about Evan's case as well. Uh, I can tell you that Paul, uh, his spirits are still good. He's still remaining strong. He's still resilient. Uh, small known fact, I mean, he sings the national anthem every day from his prison cell, and he's ready to come home, and we're going to find a way to bring him home. Uh, last question for you here. Part of what, um, what David Whalen said, uh, Paul's brother, he says that uh, this shouldn't matter what the brother, his brother or Evan Gershkovich ended up, uh, that they detained or what their professions are, that this should be treated equally, both cases, or both cases being treated equally. Now, we don't prioritize cases in my office. We have uh, between 30 and 40 cases right now, and we're trying to bring all of them home. We don't prioritize. And as you can say, from the 26 people that we've brought home in the last year, they've come from different uh, levels of fame, different levels of financial uh, health. It doesn't matter to us. All that matters is that they're holding a blue passport and they're wrongfully detained. And then if that's the case, we're going to find a way to bring them home. Roger Carson's at the White House for, for us this morning. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Such an important voice to hear from on this topic. Also this morning, we're tracking this. You know, it's fair to wonder, would COVID testing have always been free if not for this moment that happened in 2020? 
But Dr. Redfield, will you commit to the CDC right now using that existing authority to pay for diagnostic testing free to every American regardless of insurance? Well, I can say that we're going to do everything to make sure everybody can nope, get the care they enough. need. We're claiming my time. I think you're an excellent questioner, so my answer is yes. Excellent. That was not the first time Congresswoman Katie Porter held powerful figures to account on Capitol Hill. Oftentimes, she does it with a whiteboard in hand. The Congresswoman is here live to talk about her new book next. So to recap here, the drug didn't get any better. The cancer patients didn't get any better. You just got better at making money. You just refined your skills at price gouging. Shell is trying to fool people into thinking that it's addressing the climate crisis, but what it's actually doing is to continue to put money into fossil fuels. Mr. Diamond, you know how to spend $31 million a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a $567 a month shortfall. This is a budget problem you cannot solve. That is California Congresswoman Katie Porter, who has made her share of viral moments since she arrived on Capitol Hill four years ago. She's known for asking tough questions and is often seen grilling talk, top executives of banks, big pharma, even top administration officials. She is now eyeing a new job, this one in the U.S. Senate. Porter is running to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is not seeking re-election in 2024. Congresswoman Katie Porter joins us now. She has a new book out called I Swear Politics is Messier than my minivan. Uh, the book is really interesting because it's so blunt, and I want to talk about that in a moment. But there are so many headlines that are we really should talk about as well these days, including that ruling from a Texas judge that we're still waiting to see what the appeal, whether or not it's going to happen, what it's going to look like. You're concerned about that, and you believe ultimately it will be reversed. Why do you think that? I think that ultimately um, it will it will be appealed, certainly. I think that if it isn't reversed at the Supreme Court level, um, we in Congress will have to take some action. Um, and we've already done that, introducing a bill. This was one of the quickest, I think, um, bills that we've ever put into place, had the most Democratic co-signers. I think Republicans are really misunderstanding this issue. It's not, it's about freedom. It's about the ability to make your own choice. And so I think that is a core value of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. It's a core value of Americans to be able to make their own decision about when and if to start a family. And so if this gets appealed, if it doesn't get overturned by a court, then I think it's going to be on Congress to act. And I think we're going to have to do that. Are you of the same mindset that some of your colleagues that if it's if it stands, the FDA should ignore that ruling? Well, I think this is always a challenging thing to think about how do we build confidence in our government institutions, right? And so we have our Supreme Court and our court system generally is facing a crisis of public confidence. Um, the the uh, things we heard about Supreme Court Justice um, Clarence Thomas, of course, a lot of outrage about that, I think, understandably. And so I think the, the better solution here is for Congress to step up. Um, I think people often forget that when the judiciary and the administrative branch are failing the American people, it's the legislative branch that is supposed to step up. Um, we are the closest branch to the people. And so I think the most the best solution here would be able to get this passed through Congress quickly. When it comes to Justice Clarence Thomas and, of course, what he's responding to, the lavish trips that he accepted from a Republican mega donor, do you think Congress though, will actually get anything passed on that front, on the ethics front for Supreme Court justices? We definitely need to get a, a judicial code of ethics passed for the Supreme Court. I think Congress has more work to do about its own ethics, for example, passing a congressional ban on stock trading. And we didn't get that over the finish line, even, even with, with Democrats in charge. And so I think one of the things that I try to talk about in the book is about the importance of us being willing to hold ourselves 
ourselves accountable, to look honestly at what people think about Congress and then try to make it better, try to earn people's trust. Don't throw up our hands um, and say that it's the other party's fault, but instead dig into what we as Democrats need to do to earn the trust of the American people. You're on the House Oversight Committee, and there has been some tension between the chairman of that committee, James Comer, and the ranking Democrat on that committee, Jamie Raskin, over Comer quietly issuing subpoenas. Do you feel when it comes to the Republican-led investigation into documents, bank records, when it pertains to Hunter Biden, do you feel like you as a member of that committee have a good understanding of what the committee is investigating? Well, I think that the hearing we've already seen on Hunter Biden's laptop, I called it a free-for-all hellscape, and it, it really was. Um, we The hearing itself lasted six hours, which is about a third of the time that the actual supposed story was suppressed. Um, and so it, the New York Post story. So the story was allegedly suppressed about 18 hours and our hearing investigating it lasted six hours. So I think this is not the right direction to be going. I do think it's important to have the ability to do subpoenas. I think there's a long tradition of those being bipartisan and I would encourage Chairman Comer to continue to do that. He has done some very good bipartisan hearings early in his time on con in Congress, including on the border um, and on pandemic fraud. Um, we're expecting to do an upcoming hearing on Big Pharma. And so I think he's shown an ability to do bipartisan work. He's also, unfortunately, sometimes I think gone the other direction and acted unilaterally. So I think there is a positive path there and we just need to push Mr. Comer to lean into that that style of working. That's a really interesting comment. We have you here today. You've written this book. Obviously, you were in Congress, you're in the House now. You were running for a Senate seat to represent California. One thing that California has been in the headlines for recently is what's happening in San Francisco. Just yesterday, it was announced that Whole Foods is closing its flagship store there. They're concerned about worker safety because of the property crimes and what you've seen in that city as a whole. How do you how do Democrats deal with that? If you're elected to the Senate, how will you personally deal with that? Well, I think this is, needs to be a value that Democrats lean into, which is that everyone should be safe in their community. That includes business owners being able to open safely, workers safe, being able to go back and forth. Um, and so I think we need to prioritize public safety. That means we need to think about what are the solutions that actually work, not just messaging bills, not things that are sound bites, which I think is where some of the Republican legislation is going, but what actually would would create a more safe environment. And it's clear that we have work to do in many of California's cities. I live in Orange County. I live in Irvine. It's the safest large city of its size, like upteenth years in a row. And so it's, it's specific to our cities. It's specific to different strategies that they're using and different challenges that they're facing. And I think one of the things the federal government can do is provide a lot more resources for housing to address people experiencing homelessness. Um, and I think provide some grants and incentives for cities to be more innovative around policing and safety. Yeah, it's certainly a concern that a lot of people have. Let's talk about the book, because I was reading this, and I, as someone who lived in Washington for eight and a half years, was kind of struck by how blunt it was, how honest it was. It's not always something you see from members of Congress, but you kind of talk about your experience coming to Capitol Hill, trying to kind of reform a, an institution that everyone hates, not, not just people on the left, not just people on the right. It's kind of, Congress does not have a good approval rating. How do you do that? Well, I think part of it is be transparent with the American people. I think there's often um, a sort of, you see this in the political biographies, a lot of them that have been written, you see people kind of trying to, to put a gloss on the job. And I think instead we should be honest with the American people. This is why the job is hard. This is why we sometimes fall down on it. To love Congress, to love democracy means being willing to push it to do better. And we can't do that if we're not being honest about where it's falling short. So if we want to have a more representative government, then we need to design an 
an institution that's modern that will let us attract young people, women, parents. I'm the only single parent of young kids. Um, and when I was elected in 2018, yet we have 10 million single parents in the United States. So I, I think we have to, if we love the institution, we have to be honest about it and not try to pretend that these problems aren't there. Look, look squarely at them, tackle them, and take them on. And what does that look like? Because one of the things that I was struck by is you talk about being a single parent in Congress and how difficult it is. And because of that, the job is easier for people who are wealthy, people who are married. You say that someone kind of implied in there that a solution to your problem when you were struggling with scheduling was to get married. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, it would be easy. People have said to me, you can't do this job without a husband. And I'm like, what? I'm here. I'm doing this job. Like, and I, I'm really trying to do a really good job for California. Um, and so I think we need to push back on those things. I think we need to modernize the institution. If it's not working for the American people, if they don't feel like they know what, we're, what we do, what we're accomplishing, then we need to think about how to change that. And so part of the reason I've made use of those hearings and, and used the whiteboard in the hearings is to try to show the American people, this is what I'm asking and this is the answer that I'm either getting or not getting sometimes in the case of a CEO or a Kelsey administration official. So if you go to the Senate, the whiteboard's coming with you. The whiteboard's definitely coming with me. One of the great things about the Senate is you serve on twice as many committees. You can take on more issues. Um, and we have a lot of special interests and a lot of folks in power who I think we need answers from. And so the Senate is a bigger opportunity to do that and more opportunities to work on the challenges facing this country. Yeah. We should note you're running against Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee for that nomination. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. The book is uh, very interesting. It's called I Swear My Life is Messier. What, what, the politics. minivan. Yeah. My life, my minivan is messier than politics. Yeah. Very good to uh, have you on and thank you for that. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Caitlin, Congresswoman, they say if you want something done, ask a busy mom, right? I think you know <laughs> a little, I think she knows a little something about that. I'm looking forward to reading it. Congrats on the book. Don's waving too. <laughs> Hi. All right, well, we're going to take you to what we've been following all morning in Richmond, Indiana. Right now, toxic smoke is spewing into the air there. Our Omar Jimenez is on his way to the recycling plant that's currently on fire. He took this video on his drive in. He'll join us live with what's actually happening on the ground. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So there are new developments this morning in the Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. A judge ruling yesterday Dominion cannot bring up the January 6th insurrection during the upcoming trial, saying that it would be too prejudicial with the jury and that this case isn't about whether Fox News influenced the insurrection. So the trial is set to kick off this week with jury selection starting tomorrow. So joining us now, senior media analyst and Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher. Good morning. Good morning. What's the judge trying to accomplish with this ruling? Well, they said this trial is going to last about five weeks. They want to keep it to five weeks, Don. So what he's trying to do is narrow the focus to what he says is going to actually address Dominion's case. Dominion needs to prove that Fox acted with actual malice, meaning that they intentionally put people on air that spewed election lies. And essentially what he's saying is that if Dominion is to bring up January 6th and Fox's role in it, he's sort of getting away from the core argument that it needs to make legally. Yeah, but what I thought was so interesting that he added to that right, is the fact that this just judge said that may be for another court at another time. Yes. Yeah, so he's not saying that what you're arguing here doesn't have merit. He's just saying that it's not what we need to focus on for the legality of this case. But it's good to remember that it's not just Dominion that has parameters. The judge also ruled that Fox News can't bring up certain things at the court either. 
For example, if someone was brought on air spewing election lies, Fox may have wanted to bring somebody up from another hour who said, well, we defended the integrity of election in a different program. The judge said, you can't do that. You can't bring up your defense of it in a news hour or something like that to defend why your primetime host or another program was putting these mm-hmm. people on air and spewing these lies. It's interesting to see those parameters. Also, what was stood out to me was what he said about Roger uh, Rupert Murdoch. Oh, yeah. That kind of, the fact of what they've said about his role, how they want to hear from him. And that's kind of been something that's played out all along here. Yes, so Dominion's lawyers were arguing, look, it matters what role Rupert Murdoch plays in Fox News, not just Fox Corp, which is the parent company Mm -hmm. to Fox News. And what the judge was basically saying was, yes, if he's an officer to Fox News, that could potentially give you license to explore more. And so one of the things that's being delegated now or, you know, debated right now is whether or not Rupert Murdoch is going to come be subpoenaed by Dominion in front of this jury to testify. If he does, it would potentially be explosive. The, the malice bar is high to prove malice. I mean, you have to show what they've already sort of overcome part of the hurdle of doing this, but now they have to show intent and malice. It's very high. And I will say there's a part of me as a journalist that's a little bit worried about this case, because if Fox is to lose, essentially the precedent that is being set is that people who are powerful that want to sue news organizations, you can. You know, the bar gets lowered a little bit for, to an extent if Fox loses this case. And so the thing that I'm watching is even, let's say, if Dominion wins, yeah. they win for $1.6 billion. Mm-hmm. If they don't, to me, it suggests that, you know, that bar is not as uh, low as it could be if they lost it all. But what the judge did say in that, that should ease everyone's concerns a little bit is that there is no truth. Fox can't go into this saying that there was, there was truth to what happened to Dominion, that we've ar- he's already taken off the table. None of it was true. Let's go back to that five weeks that I was talking about. Yeah. Before a trial like that, you're going to have a lot of things that get litigated. One of the decisions that he made, to your point on last month, was that this argument that Fox was making, which was that there's news value in bringing these claims up on his air, cannot be uh, litigated. It is not applicable. It is false. And by the way, Poppy, to your point that he had alluded that maybe another court for another time, the court of public opinion will be revisiting that decision at another time. Sarah Fisher, thank you you so much. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. What you are seeing there is a huge fire that is raging at a recycling plant in Indiana this morning. It is filling the air with toxic smoke. It has forced thousands of people to evacuate. CNN is live on the ground. We also have this for you. Louisville police releasing intense body cam video of officers confronting the mass shooter at the bank on Monday. The police chief says their actions saved lives. We're going to bring you the video next. Take a look, live look, at President Biden speaking now in Northern Ireland on a historic visit. We'll take you there live. But first, we'll go to that massive fire in Indiana, where about 2,000 people are being forced from their homes right now as this fire is continuing to rage. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live on the ground in Richmond, Indiana. Omar, I know you just got there. I see that you're wearing a mask. What is it like on the ground there, and what are you hearing from officials? 
Yeah, Caitlin. Well, for starters, you could see this huge plume of smoke as you were driving into Richmond, Indiana here, coming off the highway for miles. You, you really couldn't miss it. At this point, we do know that it has been burning for quite some time and is expected to burn for days. The state fire marshal here says this smoke is definitely toxic, given the plastics that are burning and the chemicals they give off when they burn. And I want to give you an idea of, of their efforts right now. I'm going to step out just for a second so we can adjust for this sun. You can actually see fire crews spraying water on the edge of this fire right now. This is at the border of the factory. You see them uh, using their ladder essentially to get a high vantage point and get that water down into where these flames are burning. We've been told that the fire is contained in the sense that it's not spreading to other parts of this city for now, but their efforts now are trying to whittle this down again for a blaze that they do expect to burn for days. Thankfully, everyone who is said to be inside this fire has been uh, accounted for or inside this factory, I should say, has been accounted for. Now, as for what specifically caused this, we still don't know. And officials are trying that they, they think they'll have a better clue once this dies down. But we did hear from the fire chief that the owner of this building is someone that they had cited multiple times previously and that this behind behind me is frustrating for the fire chief and use his words we knew it wasn't a matter of if it was a matter of when this was going to happen so a lot of questions here including air quality questions you see obviously how high this smoke is going and even though cars are still going back and forth these evacuation orders affecting about 2,000 people so far in this 35,000 uh, person town but the air quality report is something that we are waiting on this morning we were told it was come sometime around daybreak and obviously it'll help give some significant clues to how much of an issue this is going to be not just for for this part of Indiana but obviously the surrounding areas as well yeah, that's that's about the same size as the town where I grew up in Alabama. And so I know people have concerns about that. You just said that they had been cited before. Do we know exactly what this facility had been cited for? What those those citations were, Omar? That's going to be top of the list for our questions for the, the fire chief. We're expecting an update from from a host of officials here uh, in, in just about an hour or so. We're told they're going to give us an update, and uh, that's, of course, top of the list because whatever this may have been, it seems like this facility was on their radar before. To what extent, we do not know. For, for what specific reason, we do not know. But again, that quote of it was not a matter of if but when is pretty striking to come from a public official who, who deals with fires, but he's been quoted as saying this is the biggest fire he's ever had to deal with. And uh, based on the size and the scope of what you can see from the air, from driving in, uh, it's probably the biggest this area uh, has ever seen as well. Yeah. All right, Omar, please stay safe and keep us updated on what you do learn. Thank you. We'll continue to watch that as we are watching Louisville as well. We're now seeing body cam, police body cam video of the intense shootout between officers and the mass shooter at the bank in Louisville. The video comes from the body cameras of two officers who rushed in to confront the gunman. One is a rookie who was shot in the head. The other is this training officer who killed that shooter. CNN's senior crime and justice correspondent is Shimon Brogopez. He's here now to break down what the video shows and a warning to our viewers. This video we're about to see very disturbing. Good morning to you. Walk morning, us through this Don. video of what it so shows. So we're going to start with that rookie officer, Officer yeah. Wilt. We see his body camera footage here first. He is driving and almost immediately when they get to the scene here, Don, 
you'll start to hear, you see the gunshots. You can hear them. And that's when the partner, Officer Galloway, is telling him to back out. And almost immediately, and I just want to stop here uh, for a second. You see Galloway here. He's the training officer. He goes to the trunk to retrieve his long rifle. Mm-hmm. Almost every police department now, because of active shooter situations, they ride around with these rifles now to respond to these type of situations. It's part of their training. And almost immediately you see that's what Officer Galloway here, uh, what he does. And, and then now, his now video, look right? at his video. They are being shot at. And it's just remarkable. The fact that they're facing gunshots, the fact that they're being fired on, they still go towards those gunshots. They go towards the threat to try and eliminate. And that is where you see that rookie officer with just four shifts, 10 mm-hmm. days on the job. He gets shot. He goes down. But Officer Galloway is also shot. He is grazed. And then he runs down. He realizes that he needs to get behind something. And he gets behind this uh, pillar here. And he is still taking gunshots, trying to get sight onto the gunman. He eventually shoots and kills the gunman. What's really um, remarkable here also, Don, is the fact that they could not see the shooter. They couldn't see him. Um, They were basically fired upon. It was an ambush. They could not see him, and he was able to shoot them. them. Both of them were shot. Luckily, Galloway was only grazed. And then here's a bystander footage, and you see uh, here more of some of that action as they're trying to get towards the shooter and take him out. They could only just guess where it was coming yeah, from, from the trajectory of the bullets, right? right? And just from their experience. Because of the way the glass is set up here, they yeah. could not see inside. And this gunman was just waiting there. It's just remarkable to see these officers do this in this way, go towards the gunshots, knowing full well that they're putting their lives at risk, doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, as the deputy chief here said, Don, you yeah, know... I want to play what the deputy chief, yeah. chief had to say. Listen to this, Shimon, and then we'll talk. Uh, what you saw in that video was absolutely amazing. It's, it's tragic, but it's absolutely amazing. There's only a few people in this country that can do what they did. Not everybody can do that. Uh, they, they deserve to be honored for what they did. Because it is not something that comes easily. It is not something that comes naturally. Mm. You know, when I heard him say that, it made me think of Uvalde. I was going to say, what the difference between this and Uvalde? What do you think? I, for me, listening to him um, say that, it just, it sounded to me like he was addressing that issue. The fact that you have officers here going towards the gunfire. They don't retreat at all. They just keep going. Eventually, they have to take cover. Um, in Uvalde, we saw a situation where officers did go forward. They started going towards the gunshots. But the minute they felt a threat and they saw the gunshots and one of the officers got grazed, they retreated. They hid. And for 77 more minutes, we know what happened. Yeah. They waited and waited. They wanted more gear. They wanted more equipment. These officers didn't have shields. They didn't have helmets. One of the rookie officer only had. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's where he goes down. Yeah. He gets grazed there. But, and he keeps going. He, he doesn't going. stop. Yeah. And that is so remarkable here. Definitely brave. They run into danger. Thank you very much, Shimon Perkovic. After the show, Caitlin's going to head to Kentucky to sit down with Governor Andy Bashir. That interview is going to air tonight at 9 on CNN Primetime. Poppy? Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking for the first time about the leak of highly classified Pentagon documents. Nothing will ever stop us from keeping America secure. We take this very seriously. And we will continue to investigate and and turn over every rock 
until we find the source of this and the extent of it. Sources also tell CNN this joint probe with the DOJ could take months to finish, in part because there are thousands of people who had access to these documents, something CIA Director Bill Burns addressed last night. Are there things that we need to do better, of course? Um, I think there's a serious problem of overclassification sometimes in the U.S. government as well, which is something that I think needs to be taken on. These leaked documents included recent intelligence on the war in Ukraine, very recent, and U.S. spying efforts on allies and enemies. Let's talk about this and a lot more with Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Republican Congressman Mike Turner. He received a briefing, of course, on the leaked documents yesterday. Congressman, Chairman, thank you very much for your time this morning. Good morning. The fact that we just heard Secretary Austin say there are other documents out there, they don't know if there are, there may be, really echoes what we heard John Kirby at the White House say. Right. We don't know if this is over. What is your level of right. concern? Right. Well, obviously, there's, there's great concern as to um, anyone who might have access to classified documents who would commit an act of espionage, which is what this is. Uh, you know, Secretary Austin made clear this individual will be tracked down if they're American, they're a traitor, they'll be taken, uh, they'll certainly be brought to justice. But the aspect of what are in these documents, the content of these documents is what's troubling and, it, and what really requires action. Although these documents are static, they're a picture of at a, a specific period of time, it does allow us to have some flexibility in working with Ukraine and with the United States to try to change uh, the outcomes, change the circumstances that are reflected in the documents, uh, obviously to continue to support Ukraine and, and uh, giving it an advantage. But the fact that people do have access to these documents and mm -hmm. they might have continued access uh, is why we need to find where this leak is coming from to prevent yeah. future damage. I mean, you were just in Ukraine meeting with President Zelensky last week. And part of what this document shows is just how pessimistic the U.S. outlook is for Ukraine, even more pessimistic than folks high up have been saying publicly. They detail perceived weaknesses uh, in, in the ranks in U Ukraine in terms of military weaknesses. Do you think that this could alter Ukraine's plans in fighting this ongoing war? I'm glad you raised that point because it, it, that really is kind of misleading. I was just, as you said, in Ukraine and I yeah. met with both our service members and, and uh, officials from NATO. There's actually a great deal of optimism. In order to be able to support Ukraine, in order to be able to support outcomes and strategy, you have to first decide and, and review critically mm -hmm. what are your weaknesses. Mm. You have an ability to impact the outcome of those weaknesses. Mm. So you know, I think anybody who looks at these who thinks that you know this means that, that this, these outcomes will uh, will be negative. Uh, you know, is, okay. is drawing the wrong conclusion. Okay. These are, are working documents for us to be able to impact. Well, I will say General Milley said a few weeks ago that it, the, the belief is not that Ukraine can win the war this year. I know you've said, well, you don't think Russia can either. I do want to ask you what you right. think of CIA right. Director Bill Burns, though, saying there's a serious problem of overclassification. Do you agree? Absolutely. And part of the problem with the overclassification is, is the American public and sometimes even the rest of Congress doesn't get a real picture of what's going on. And it inhibits the ability to have a discussion mm -hmm. and a debate. Uh, I think that this is probably one of the number one things that we need to do is get information out in the public discourse. We certainly have seen this with respect to Russian uh, information that we've had, classified information that we've put out that has changed the outcome of this uh, this fight. Uh, so it does have an impact the moment you can take classified information and put it out in the public you, in a positive way, not in, in an espionage way as this was. Saying on the issue of classified documents, but other classified documents, Trump, Biden, former Vice President Pence, you and other top lawmakers overseeing the intelligence community have finally 
after quite a while, gained access to classified documents found improperly at the hands of all three of those leaders. Can you talk to us about what you've learned in terms of potential damage that they could cause if they fall into the wrong hands? I know there's a lot you can't say, but now that you've sure. seen them. But I, I can give you some conclusions. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, and I haven't personally seen them. My staff have begun working with Fair. them. I'll see them when I return back to Washington next week. But, but what I can tell you so far is that of the documents that have been released, which is just a, sm a small portion of the overall documents, there is no imminent national security threat that's evident in any in of any these of, documents. And they've looked at On your staff, looked at all of them? any of these documents. Right. And the ones that we have been given now, we've only been given a portion of them. So yeah. we'll have to see what else comes later. But what's also just very disingenuous to the part of the Department of Justice is they've given us these without identifying which person that they were taken from. Now, obviously, you can kind of tell by context. But at the same time, the Department of Justice is not being forthcoming here. They're not being fully disclosing. But what they have disclosed right now shows no imminent national security threat from any of the documents some of, that have been released to Congress. We know some of the documents that were, were, were found and finally taken from Mar-a-Lago in August of 2022 were marked with some of the highest classification markings there are. And this is what Trump's former Attorney General Bill Barr had to say Trump should be most concerned about in terms of the multiple probes against him. Here was Barr on Sunday. I think he was jerking the government around and they subpoenaed it and they tried to jawbone him uh, into delivery of the documents. But uh, the government is investigating the extent to which games were played and there was obstruction in keeping the documents from them. And I think, think that's a serious uh, potential case. I think they probably have some very good evidence there. Do you think he's right that this poses a real threat to Trump? Well, he's, he's a former attorney general, and he's talking about the crux of the case itself. And, of course, I'm looking at the issue of national security and its documents. So we're coming at it from a different perspective. But I really do think for all of these individuals have exposure. You know, as you recall, I know, but uh, I really just Garland had to respectfully, a Chairman, Hold on want a to stay but focused is, on what uh, Bill the, Barr just said about former President Trump and what I, we now am, know is an obstruction I am, I, probe. Right. So what what I what I'm trying to give to you is also an understanding that both President Biden and former President Trump have special prosecutors that are reviewing these cases. Both of them are reviewing the issue of how do these documents come into their hands? How are they handling yep. them? Huge um, difference. Whether or not there was obstruction. Huge. Well, Wait, you know, can President you Biden had any... his apparently for six years. OK, can you just six years? OK. They're very different, especially in terms of how the government got their hands on the documents. For four months after a subpoena, Trump still had classified documents. The subpoena was in May of 2022. They finally had to go in there in August and get the documents. That is not at all what happened well, with well, President Biden's documents. I'm not defending either of any... I'm no, I'm not any of these you're, individuals. You're it's clearly them. improper handling of classified documents. What, what you need to understand, though, is there are two criminal cases that are ongoing, criminal cases, one against President Biden and one against former President Trump. Both of those, I mm -hmm. think, are very serious cases. Yeah. And, and from what we see in the manner in which these documents were held, uh, President Biden holding him for six years and even having some behind his Corvette in his garage, President Trump not responding to subpoenas and negotiations uh, with the FBI. I think for both, there are very serious issues as to the handling of classified documents. Okay. Let me tell you this, on our committee, we've taken up this issue because we believe that there are statutes that need to be changed so that we can, can impact how presidents, vice presidents, when they're leaving office, handle classified documents, because this is absolutely okay. improper handling of classified documents. Okay, I would just note in the probe of the Trump documents, 
the obstruction part of it. The Washington Post, as you know, several weeks ago reported that investigators have gathered text and video that they believe indicates that Trump himself looked through contents of those boxes after the subpoena. I want to end on guns because this matters a lot. Look at the shooting in Louisville. Look at the shooting in Nashville. In Louisville, AR-15 style rifle used, legally purchased. You were one of 14 House Republicans who voted last year to pass that bipartisan bill to address gun violence. Your daughter was across the street in that horrific mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio. You endorsed a ban on military-style weapons. Why won't more Republicans agree? The sale of them. The sale of them. Why won't more? Help us understand why more Republicans will not get on board with what you believe is needed. Well, I don't really think it's just a partisan issue. As you know, since since the uh, Clinton ban on the sale of military-style weapons expired... Since it expired, in not one speaker, not Democrat, not one Democrat, not one Republican speaker have brought to the floor a bill that would extend that ban or renew that ban. President now, Biden has I, repeatedly I called for an assault weapons ban, Chairman. President Biden has repeatedly called there for has this. Not been, there has not been one Democrat or one Republican okay. speaker who has brought to the, bi- to the floor the bill to renew I'm asking the you about your party that expired. I'm asking you about your party and why right. you think more fellow Republicans will not agree to an assault weapons ban that you think is needed. Well, I, I don't think Democrats are agreeing to it either, is my point. I, there, this is not passing out you of Congress. Think- it's not like this is, is not a bipartisan impediment. If, if you've got both Democrats you and don't Republicans think Democrats that are preventing this that? bill from occurring. Okay. Nancy Pelosi could have brought this bill to the floor at any moment and has never done so. Okay. I wanted to, trying to get an answer about your fellow Republicans on something you think is very important, is clearly very close to you. So I appreciate your time this morning, Chairman. I, I, think, I, think, the, I think the opposition is bipartisan. I absolutely You do. think it's equally, okay. We're out of time. Thank Nancy you Nancy Pelosi could have brought this bill at think... any time to the floor. Okay. We appreciate your time, Chairman Rogers. Thank you. Well, you know that's the case. You know that's the case. Thank you, Chairman. Don. All right, Poppy, thank you very much. Another Republican exploring a possible White House run. How Senator Tim Scott stacks up against the other contenders. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. That is President Biden just wrapped up remarks at Ulster University in Northern Ireland, marking the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, something he has prioritized, made at the top of his conversations with every British prime minister since taking office. CNN's Phil Mattingly is traveling with the president live on the ground. Phil, what have you seen so far? Yeah, Caitlin, you make a really good point. It seemed like every readout of every conversation he had with any prime minister included uh, the very important note about his views of the Good Friday Agreement, the necessity of maintaining the stability and the semblance of peace that has transpired over the course of the last 25 years. And that was in large part the central focus of his remarks, but also not just a look back, but instead a look forward. And it's worth noting these remarks happened at Ulster University in a glass building that is made up of about 44 basketball courts worth of glass pain, something that at the height of the troubles would have been completely unthinkable. It was something the president pointed out to underscore the progress that has been made. But that progress currently stands at a very complex moment. Obviously, in the wake of Brexit, there have been negotiations about the hard border and where trade would stand between Northern Ireland, uh, the UK and Ireland and the EU. Uh, There have been progress on that with the Windsor framework, but also still the very real political difficulties here. The leadership of the five political parties in the Stormont were present and 
including uh, those of the one uh, party that remains currently boycotting the power-sharing government. It's basically uh, left it uh, moribund over the course of the last year. While the president wasn't trying to put his thumb on the scale, at least not publicly, was urging the power-sharing government to come back together to work as an institution, more than anything else, pledging that the U.S. will remain behind Northern Ireland, underscoring the critical nature of Northern Ireland in terms of its roots and attachment to the United States, and making clear that perhaps more than anything else, business investment and United States investment uh, will certainly be there and only grow should they continue to make progress on that front. Uh, Caitlin, as you know quite well, this was one of the probably most difficult aspects of a trip that in large part will be a personal, very deeply personal trip to the president, trying to navigate things here in Northern Ireland. This speech really trying to thread a needle to some degree. Worth noting, he does plan to meet personally, individually, with each of those five political leaders uh, in the hours ahead before heading down uh, to Dublin, trying to make some progress here while not being seen as weighing too far one way or another uh, in what remains a complex political environment. Yeah, and also noting it was a rare moment of bipartisanship in Washington on this issue. Phil Mattingly, I know you'll continue tracking the president. Thank you. All right, here at home, Republican Senator Tim Scott this morning officially announcing his presidential exploratory committee. Watch this. I will never back down in defense of the conservative values that make America exceptional. And that's why I'm announcing my exploratory committee for president of the United States. So we go from the actual president of the United States to someone who wants to be president, and our Kristen Holmes joins me now. Good morning to you. Another name potentially entering the field. What else do we know about the, this exploratory committee, Kristen? Yeah, Don, well, this takes them one step closer to a formal 2024 presidential bid. And I will note that once he does, if he does announce a formal run in 2024, Tim Scott will be a formidable opponent. He is the most prominent black leader in the Republican Party. He's wildly popular. He's a dynamic speaker. He's also proven himself to be an impressive fundraiser. He's currently sitting on more than $20 million in his Senate account that can be transferred over to a presidential bid. The other thing about Tim Scott is that he has a powerful life story, one of the things he touched on in that video. Take a listen. I was raised by a single mother in poverty. The spoons in our apartment were plastic, not silver, but we had faith. We put in the work and we had an unwavering belief that we too could live the American dream. I know America is a land of opportunity, not a land of oppression. I know it because I've lived it. That's why it pains my soul to see the Biden liberals attacking every rung of the ladder that helped me climb. Now, Don, one thing that Tim Scott doesn't have that some other 2024 Republican hopefuls do is that national name recognition. And that's something that this committee could help with, raise his national profile before he actually formally launches. And that's something he's capitalizing on. We're going to see him campaigning in some of these early voting states, Iowa today, New Hampshire tomorrow, and his home state of South Carolina on Friday. All right. Kristen Holmes in Washington. Thank you. Kristen, thank you so much. I have to go to D.C. <laughs> I know. We're like, well, I'm heading to D.C. I'm going to interview the director of the National Economic Council, Lael nice. Brainerd. We'll play it on the show tomorrow. But to get there in time, yeah. I hand it over to you. Yeah. Uh, ahead, we're going to talk about the dire new assessment of the crisis at the Colorado River as water levels plummet there. Lucy Kafnoff is live from the Colorado River Basin. 
So life out west wouldn't exist as we know it without the Colorado River. And although we've had a lot of snow this year, it hasn't been enough to overcome decades of drought and climate change. Our report on the dire uh, options facing western states coming right up. I want to update you on this because we're following these developments in a massive toxic fire raging at a recycling plant. It's in Indiana. An evacuation order has been issued for people who live within a half mile of the inferno. Around 2,000 people have been told to leave their homes. A shelter-in-place order has also been issued for anyone downwind of the fire, which officials say could burn for days. This is new video. There it is right there, just into CNN, of this toxic plume of smoke, which is so large that you can see it from miles away. We're awaiting a press conference in the next few hours, and we're going to stay on the story with any breaking details. Also this morning, a story that is just as important. 40 million Americans, as we know, rely on the Colorado River for drinking water. It is one of the nation's most important sources of fresh water. But years of drought have federal officials floating tough options to slash water usage as water levels from major reservoirs continue to plummet. CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh joins us live from Avon, Colorado. And Lucy, this is a really significant decision that is coming from the federal government because they're kind of putting legal precedent aside here when they're proposing these cuts. That's right, Caitlin. The Colorado River is literally what powers the American West. It quenches the thirst of some 40 billion people. It helps water the farms that provide the nation's winter greens. And although we had an unusually wet and snowy winter, that hasn't been enough to override those decades of climate change, drought and water overuse. The federal government with this new proposal is effectively trying to scare states into voluntary water cuts before it is forced to step in and take some scary actions. As water levels for the Colorado River's major reservoirs remain at alarmingly low levels, exacerbated by more than two decades of drought and chronic overuse, the federal government releasing a dire assessment of the painful choices facing the American West. We cannot kick the can on finding solutions, and the women and men responsible for managing the system for the benefit of 40 million Americans and countless ecosystems. Snaking across the southwest and into Mexico, the Colorado River is the lifeblood of the region. It waters booming cities while nourishing some of the nation's most fertile fields and generates hydroelectricity for the southwest. But without massive changes to how the water is used and distributed, all that could soon be at risk. We have a lot of hard work and difficult decisions ahead of us in this basin. But those paths have dire consequences in some cases and may spur opposition or even litigation. The options presented by the Interior Department to cut 2 million acre feet in water usage in 2024 are grim. One prioritizes the needs of thirsty farming regions in California, which along with native tribes have a higher water priority claim. But that could devastate major western cities like Las Vegas, which gets 90 percent of its water from the Colorado River, as well as Los Angeles and Phoenix. Option two spread the pain evenly among all the users, which could lead to lengthy court battles. A third option, doing nothing at all, might have the highest cost if the river continues to dwindle. This no-action alternative, we will see the most impacts to the system. We can expect water levels to continue to decline, threatening the operations of the system and the water supply of 40 million people. 
While an unusually wet winter is providing some relief, it's not enough to solve the Colorado River crisis. Everyone who lives and works in the basin knows that one good year will not save us for more than two decades of drought. For some communities in Arizona, the dire future is a present reality. Part of Maricopa County, about an hour's drive from downtown Phoenix, the Rio Verde Foothills community was a slice of paradise until it began to ran dry. Too many homes, too little water. I think everybody thinks the government or somebody's going to take care of it. And unfortunately, I think that's what most of the U.S. is thinking. And they need to wake up and people need to start conserving water now before it's too late. We lost all of our water. Drought has already pushed farmers like Will Feelander to the brink. Do you fear that the future of farming in Arizona is under threat? Yeah, no one can produce it like the Colorado River can for food. It's just nowhere on earth is it done like that. Mm. So yeah, I'm really worried. 50 years down the road, unless we come up with solutions, farming won't be here. But time to come up with those solutions is running out. The options presented by the federal government and the Bureau of Reclamation show the sort of cuts that could be imposed if this region doesn't reach an agreement. There's still time, but it is running out, Caitlin. The government does plan to take a final decision this summer. Caitlin? Yeah, an important decision that everyone should be paying attention, attention to. Lucy Kavanaugh, thank you. All right, thanks, Lucy. A flagship Whole Foods in downtown San Francisco closing due to staff safety. We're going to speak to a local official on how it got to this point right after this. You see San Francisco there. We're also learning now that an enormous Whole Foods store, one of the flagships in downtown San Francisco, is not going to be opening today over concerns about worker safety. The company says it is shutting down this store just one year after it opened. A Whole Foods spokesperson told CNN to ensure the safety of our team members. We have made the difficult decision to close the Trinity store for the time being. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors member Matt Dorsey responded, saying our neighborhood waited a long time for this supermarket, but we're also well aware of the problems that they've experienced with drug-related retail theft, adjacent drug markets, and the many safety issues related to them. Matt Dorsey joins us now, and he represents the district where that Whole Foods is located. And thank you so much for being here. You said you could tell this store was struggling. What did you see? Well, I will say this. I just want to set the stage for, you know, what this neighborhood is about. Market Street is the main thoroughfare of San Francisco. It goes from our iconic ferry building to the foot of Twin Peaks and the Castro District. So this is a place where there's a lot of activity. And the mid-market section of this, which is close to City Hall, um, has always been just about there. And in the last few years, we had some development coming and you know, this is what 21st century urbanism should be, as a great neighborhood that's up and coming, well served by transit and bike lanes, and then COVID came. And in San Francisco, it also happened to coincide with the arrival of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Over the last three years here in San Francisco, we have seen a 12-fold increase in the amount of fentanyl um, that our local police officers are taking off of street-level drug dealers. And it's playing out in a level of addiction um, and, and bad behavior that's largely driven by a level of addiction that we have never seen here. Um, that's why uh, I made the decision to run for the Board of Supervisors. I have a journey in recovery from addiction myself, and I believe we can do better as a city, but I will tell you, the closure of Whole Foods after just a year of 
being open is a real gut punch for the neighborhood. Um, and I wish I could say I was surprised, but I, I have seen a lot of the issues with people acting out and shoplifting. So fingers crossed uh, we can turn things around here. And I do have some optimism, but hopefully we can get this supermarket back open because the neighborhood waited a long time for it. Mm -hmm. I think it's very brave of you to talk about um, your personal issues as well. So thank you for doing that because it takes a stigma off. People know that there is a road to recovery and you can uh, get better. You also represent the area where tech executive Bob Lee was stabbed to death last week. Despite that high profile killing, San Francisco has far fewer homicides than other similarly sized cities. Do you think people have a misunderstanding of just about how dangerous San Francisco is, Matt? I, yeah, I do. And, and thanks for asking the question. As you, know, you may know, um, before I joined the Board of Supervisors, which is our local sort of city council, I served for two years as a civilian member of the command staff of the police department. And one of the things that I saw play out um, in terms of crime in a time of COVID um, was I think most major cities in the United States would trade their violent crime problem for our property crime problem and sort of public drug use problem in a heartbeat. That being said, we're a major city. We have violent crime. So I don't want to diminish anybody's um, sense of fear I think what, what the perception is really is around the public drug use, the brazen drug dealing, the kind of acting out, retail theft, the kinds of things that are very unsettling to people and, and very visible. And for a city like San Francisco that relies so much on being a welcoming, uh, you know, iconic city that people want to commute to and visit from around the nation and around the world, um, this is something that really hurts our economy. And the store right behind me, the Whole Foods, that's not going to be opening up is exhibit A of why we've got to turn this around. Yeah. The question I think people have is how do you turn it around? We were just talking to Katie Porter, who is obviously running to represent your state in the Senate. She's a congresswoman there now from Orange County. A congresswoman, she, saw, she talked about more resources for housing, grants on how to be innovating uh, on policing. What do you think the solution is? So I think in San Francisco, the issue that we are facing, and it's not unique to San Francisco, but we have a, a real police understaffing crisis. Um, this is a generational issue because there is a disproportionately large uh, generational cohort of police officers hired during the Clinton administration. Um, and right now, they're all reaching retirement age, and we're all going off a demographic cliff if we don't do more and, and better uh, to make sure that we're hiring police officers. One of the things that has been frustrating to me is San Francisco is being outcompeted by local jurisdictions around Northern California. I think our recruiting bonus is about $5,000. Across the Bay and Alameda, they're paying $75,000. Wow. That's the difference between a down payment for a condo and a down payment for a car. And I think we've got to f do better. We are the, uh, you know, the, the giant of Northern California. So I want to make sure that we're competing better. Um, and I'm proposing a charter amendment along with my colleague, Supervisor Catherine Stephanie, um, to get to a fully staffed police department within no, no less than five years. But I oh. think we might even be able to do it sooner. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Timeline. Yeah. Learned a lot. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt Dorsey. Thank you. We'll be right back. Time now for our morning moment. Caitlin is really excited about this one. The <laughs> NYPD's newest recruits will look slightly different.
Digidog is out of the pound. Digidog is now part of the toolkit that we are using. All right, so meet Digidog. There he is, one of three new crime-fighting robotic tools unveiled in Times Square just yesterday. It is remote-controlled and will assist with hostage negotiations, counterterrorism, and more. Digidog was briefly used by the NYPD just a few years ago, but it was shut down following a backlash labeling it as dystopian. But Mayor Adams ensured the public that the new technology will save lives and it will be used transparently. Also revealed this star chase gun that can shoot a tractable, a trackable, I should say, GPS projectile at vehicles. And these K5 robots will patrol predetermined paths and use AI to give real-time notifications. DigiDog is ready to go. The other two will have to spend a little more time in the academy. Pilot programs could launch this summer. Just your so putting dogs out of work. <laughs> Real dogs. And maybe humans, too. DigiDog, <laughs> there we go. Astro and the Jetsons. We, are in, we live in the future, but future is now. Uh, we're so glad that you could join us today. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.